all it takes is one person in the community to believe that we can do better than killing. This is Defender Radio. Welcome, folks. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, brought to you by the Fur Bears. Here we are in Season 5. I really couldn't think of a better way to kick off this momentous run than with Coyote Expert and my good friend, Leslie Sampson of Coyote Watch Canada. Leslie and I spent some time recording in a forest in the Niagara Falls region last week, talking about building community buy-in to coexistence programs, the ups and downs of developing such a plan, and why living with coyotes shouldn't just be possible, but preferable for communities. And that's not all I have to share with you this week. I have a few new features of the show I want to tell you about. The first is the 60-second advocacy bit. In less than one minute, I'm going to share with you what the primary folks of my guests' advocacy is, what solutions they have, and how you can get involved. That way, if you can't stay for the whole episode, or it's a subject that you may struggle with, you'll get the basics so you can still help the cause. I also hear from a lot of you that there's an interest in helping the show, and that's why I've created a new Patreon. That's the online way of supporting creators, podcasters like myself, artists, designers, musicians, and so on. It's simple. Visit patreon.com slash defenderradio, choose a tier of giving, and click. Each tier, starting at $1 per month and going up to $150 per month, has rewards. For only $1 per month, you'll get access to exclusive behind-the-scenes videos, blogs, outtakes, and more. Bump that up to $5 per month, and you'll also get an additional stream of content from each interview that can't be heard anywhere else. As the tiers go up, so do the rewards. Defender Radio t-shirts, advocacy gear from the Fur Bears, and even an executive producer title are available. Check out Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Defender Radio to learn more and help the show and the fur bears grow. Of course, I also can't start a new season without a contest, so here we go. Register to receive Defender Radio updates and the Fur Bears e-news at thefurbears.com slash updates, and you'll be entered in a chance to win a shirt and advocacy pack from the Fur Bears. If you're already signed up, you're already in the draw. If not, just visit thefurbears.com slash updates and make sure you opt in to receive both email types and you'll be entered. The winner will be announced on next week's episode. Now here's this week's 60 Second Advocacy. The natural appearance of coyotes can cause a stir in communities, and not always in a good way. Research shows that lethal control isn't an effective long-term tool to manage or prevent conflict between coyotes and people but coexistence programs can be a positive solution. Coyote Watch Canada works with communities to develop programs that stand on four pillars of coexistence. Prevention, education, investigation, and enforcement. Educational information targeting all demographics, including children, is also available. You can learn how these programs work and how you can be the champion of coexistence in your community at coyotewatchcanada.com. We'll get to this week's interview after this brief message. Looking for a parka that'll keep you warm in Canada's extreme winters and not harm the animals? Check out Woolly Outerwear, a Toronto-based, made-in-Canada ethical company that utilizes military-grade technology to keep you warm and help save the lives of animals. Portions of every sale go to support the fur bears and animal sanctuary. 
I embrace my wild side by wearing woolly, and you can too. Learn about their commitments to the environment, the animals, and the people they work with, as well as how to buy at WoollyOuterwear.com or anywhere on social media. Let's talk about the bird's eye view of the coyote coexistence programs that you, you endorse, that you create. What are the main components of it that make it possible? So if we're engaged in a community in a collaborative fashion mm-hmm. or partnership, direct partnership, where we're essentially on call for the community 24-7, yeah. we have a wildlife strategy framework the roots of that framework are coexistence, but also humane coexistence, which really uh, elevates non-lethal protocol within a community. So of those four cornerstones, we have investigation, education, prevention, and enforcement. Mm -hmm. And what we have found over the years is that when all four cornerstones are met, and it doesn't happen overnight. It can be a, quite a long process. And some communities don't have all of the resources to implement all at once. Uh, we find that if all four cornerstones are being met, that true uh, co-flourishing is attainable. Mm-hmm. And you use the term co-flourishing, whereas the standard term in our, I'll call it industry, or our sector of wildlife advocacy is coexistence. Why do you find it important to talk about co-flourishing? Well, uh, first of all, uh, one of our advisory council, she brought up that notion, uh, Jacqueline Milner, uh, many moons ago. And really, for me personally, I feel that it fits the umbrella of Coyote Watch Canada in that we're striving for beyond just tolerance of one another. So animals that are in the landscape, yes, we're striving for a coexistence, but we want more than that. So it's including and embracing Mm -hmm. that essential role that each animal plays, not just canids, but all animals and being able to appreciate and be aware of their place in in our ecosystems. I think it's vital for that. So co-flourishing for us is really that step above and beyond coexistence. All right, and uh, going back to the framework, where was the first time that you were a part of successfully implementing that or, or even just sort of starting to implement it? Was it here in the, the Niagara it, region? Yes, yes, and we are indebted to uh, Mayor Diodotti and city staff, the -hmm. executive assistant, Carrie Campbell. There's a whole layer of people that make this co-flourishing framework possible. It is never a one-person show. And as you know, we have that kind of mantra that says uh, it takes an entire community to really successfully Mm co-flourish with one another. I mean, we do it every day from our species to the neighbor. Uh, But part of that is, you know, whether it's a tree growing, a squirrel, raccoon, coyote, wolf, bear, we, we have to navigate through the interface that is presented to us and do it in a way that's loving, uh, wise, and respectful to those animals that might not walk on two legs. Mm -hmm. And 
what was the process? Uh, and again, I, I'm familiar with the process, and some of the listeners and viewers are familiar with the process, as they have very much maybe been a part of it now over the years. But that first time you did it, what was it like just sort of trying to bring those four cornerstones into place? Well, a lot of stumbling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it. this is something that is a work in progress every day. We're reevaluating, reassessing, revisiting. How can we tighten this up? How do we make it more accessible to, say, a community further up north? Um, and I think part of that process truly involves the engagement of a coyote response team or a canid response team. Yeah. Because, you know, we can't be everywhere all the time and neither can, say, for example, animal services or a humane society. So you look at what agencies or what personnel can complement that framework and what will their role be but at the end of the day, that information has to go somewhere where it will be addressed, whether it's, yeah. you know, collected as data or it's used as a benchmark like, oh, OK, so-and-so's feeding again. We're getting that increase in uh, coyote and fox sightings. And so I think it's, you know, all it takes is one person in the community to believe that we can do better than killing. Yeah. And... That, I think, is often the hardest part, though, isn't it? Because lethal controls, or lethal protocols, as you put it, is, has been the standard for so many communities, especially, I would say, when you're more rural. Um, what, how do you have that conversation about... And, I, and again, I'm familiar with the science, and we, we've interviewed people who are familiar with the science. You make the science. You've yourself contributed to this. But how do we convince people that there is another way and that other way is actually a better way for everybody? The great thing about history is that there is your indication whether something is successful or not. Mm -hmm. So typically that conversation would come out if, it, if it's a, a farmer that's experiencing some sort of activity on the property we offer to do that initial assessment, that site assessment, as you and uh, Adrian yep. and I did up in Cornwall. That was a cool, that, yeah. made, that makes today feel warm. Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, my minus gosh. Minus 32 without the wind. And my zipper broke that day. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so something as simple as a trail cam can provide absolutely vital information with mm -hmm. respect to what's actually taking place, not something that we believe is happening, you go out, you do the investigation, the evidence is there, you work with what you have, yeah. and then you bring in those tools that will help, you know, a farming family or a community that's experiencing uh, an increase in uh, wildlife sightings. So you have to be able to adapt just like the savvy coyote and that every situation is unique. The landscape can offer some interesting challenges in terms of, you know, working in that area, if it's a rocky domain, is it straight up field? What's happening? Are they removing the prey species that normally would be there? And what we found um, through our interviews with folks that have been so generous with their time and their expertise, farming and ranching families, we compiled 10 trends that were glaring on each mm -hmm. of those properties that experienced zero conflict 
with canids. And one of the top things was they believed that those animals played an essential role in in the ecology of the landscape, but uh, they did not use any kind of poisoning for any of the prey species. Mm -hmm. They also left, you know, a brush area intact, but they also practice absolutely fabulous husbandry. Yeah. And they were invested in not only their livestock, but the way that they interacted with the landscape. And one of the things that is not touched enough upon is that uh, the domestic dogs roaming in farmlands. It is a big issue, and uh, that's a whole other area to discuss. And it is something that uh, we were actually talking about before we started today, in one case that I had heard about. And to me, it was a very quick... After X number of years, all of a sudden the coyotes are doing something they'd never done before. And my first question was, are there dogs in the area? Um, and that's a, that's a hard conversation to have because people say, well, no, it's coyotes. Uh, they don't, and I don't know why, but they often don't want it to be dogs. They, they almost want it to be coyotes because that's what they know. That's how they know how to deal with something. Yeah, and, you know, we have to be not only patient with wildlife, we have to be patient with one another. Mm-hmm. And part of uh, our reps that are out in the field, they have to be very, very open-minded and be able to have those difficult conversations with people that are wel- welcoming us into their home, uh, showing us their uh, property and really delving into the intimacy of their lives. and. Uh, the confidentiality of that, we we are very cognizant of keeping those relationships really tight and respectful. Yeah. And so if it means we're putting up trail cams on properties, you know, uh, gosh, when we were doing uh, research at uh, this wonderful family's uh, residence in Niagara, we had a family of five pups. Gus and Midnight were there, and um, he actually... Uh, was a hunter and his wife they they love animals and they mm-hmm. love this coyote family and you know I was there every day sometimes four times a day and they were so welcoming and they were open to being part of something larger and important yeah and to me um, you know we have to and myself in particular we sit at the negotiation table with a really a broad spectrum of individuals and the number one thing is to be show that same compassion that we expect folks to show to animals we have to be able to do that with each other regardless of where the perspectives are coming from and so part of that framework our reps need to be able to do that and it takes me a great deal of time to bring somebody into that fold because you know your your reputation is everything right well especially in this line of work as there's not a lot else to fall back on but here's who we are and what we do Um, and that is a very difficult conversation to be a part of Uh, and it's something that you and I talk frequently about uh, with some colorful language at times Um, (laughs) like purple yes those colors Um, and of note in that conversation, in line with that conversation, is that a lot of people we're dealing with, they've been brought up, their whole lives they've been told, this is how you deal with coyotes. And everyone around them has agreed with that. 
And we have to sort of understand that. And on that note, talking about it in the more suburban or urban scenario, we're often dealing with people who haven't grown up with any information about coyotes. For example, me living in the suburbs as a kid, coyotes just weren't a thing. Like they were there. I, I'm aware of that. But we never had to talk about them because they were never seen. And now we are seeing coyotes in suburban and urban areas. How do we have the conversation with people who say things like, we need to send them back to the wild, uh, which is one that I, I have a bit of a pet peeve about, uh, and who, uh, for all intents and purposes, have never had exposure to wildlife in the way that the folks who grow up or live in a rural environment would have their entire lives? Well... I just got attacked I, by a leaf. Yeah, our, our perception of what is wild, ecosystems can flourish in the most amazing places. You see a pond in the middle of a city, you see a, a forest that might be, you know, a square, you know, thousand square feet, and life is there. Mm -hmm. Insects, uh, small mammals, birds of prey. And if somebody's going into that forest and providing food for those animals, coyote will be coming along at, along at some point or another. Yeah. Um, I think, again, we have to be able to help folks look at the big picture mm -hmm. and that, you know, moving into an area that once was home to many, many species, those animals have to adjust. And before the fences are put up for new housing developments, the wildlife is going to be navigating through the same area because that's the land that they knew. Yeah. And, you know, folks will often say, well, I've lived here for 30 years and I never saw a coyote. Well, no, because things have changed. It's, yeah. you know, I didn't have to use a seatbelt when I was growing up, you know, and we have cell phones now. And, yep. you know, so that argument, it doesn't go too far because if you look around you, you, you put a bird feeder up, see all the beautiful species that attend to that bird feeder. Well, of course, the birds of prey are going to come. Mm -hmm. Of course, fox, coyote, wolf, bear, depending on, you know, if you're living up past Perry Sound. You know, you, you have to be able to provide examples for folks to make those connections, become nature literate. Uh, nature right? literate, I like that. Nature literacy is all about transitioning the viewpoint of this to this. Wow. You know, you have to basically, you're turning people on to uh, part of nature. They might not have ever had access to it before, but, you know, you reach, you reach out to them in a way that's compassionate and patient. When we talk about the four pillars, coming back to that aspect, we, I think the education aspect is something that uh, Coyote Watch Canada does a, a wonderful job of, uh, but there are a lot of other nonprofits who are starting to engage in the education aspect of it. Um, when we talk about the investigation, it's something that you are able to train. Uh, I've been out with you on investigations, both when I was a journalist and I was wearing inappropriate footwear, and you bring that up roughly every three and weeks. And a trench coat. And a trench coat. <laughs> um, I, was, I was working in an office in an urban area, and you said, hey, let's go look for poo. So, although that comes up a lot in our conversations, too. Um, and, you know, we went out when we were up in Cornwall, we did investigations and bits and pieces here and there. Um, and that's something, that's a skill that can be taught. 
Uh, and I don't want to say with relative ease, but it's kind of a linear. These are the things to look for. These are the types of questions to ask. Use your intuition. Use your instinct. Um, when we're talking about the enforcement, though, this is an aspect that's very diverse in how it's going to be approached. And there are times when we see law enforcement, and when I say law enforcement, I don't just mean uh, police, but that can also include, you know, fish and wildlife or conservation officers, bylaw officers, humane society, SPCA types. Um, how do we approach enforcement in a way that's positive? Because enforcement in itself can very often simply be negative. Like that's when you're, you're having a bad day when you visit the cops typically. So how do we present that as part of a positive part of the program? So... An expectation that we have when we begin that road of collaboration with the community is that, first of all, they become knowledgeable about those four cornerstones and how they work together and that it is the foundation. There's a bird of prey up there. The Blue Jays are really going to town. Yeah, Yeah, uh, probably the Great Horned is up there. Um, So there, there is a really a formalized expectation on on our part that uh, there will be some engagement in each of those cornerstones. The enforcement component is probably the most difficult. Yeah. However, when the staff that is uh, involved in the frontline response, whether it's animal services, the Humane Society, uh, uh, law enforcement, when there is uh, an awareness of about the importance of enforcement. Mm -hmm. So if you have a leash-free park, but folks are walking from a parking lot from their car, letting their dog run free, goes down into a ravine, territory for ungulates, canids, all sorts of animals, small bird, you know, birds and so forth. Um, The enforcement is such an easy tool, but you have to invigorate the staff that is already overtaxed, probably not enough personnel, and how that's done is through the training. Yeah. I have just, you know, I've had the joy and honor of working with the best folks out in our communities, and I am so appreciative of the opportunity to share, in a humble way, our, our knowledge and what they can gain through a thoughtful investigation, but also when they're out in the community, when you see a garbage overflowing, everyone has a cell, do that call, get it to the city. Everybody then becomes accountable, but it's, 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 a, it's embracing the accountability. Yeah. Well, and that's a, a wonderful segue into the buy-in. And that's one of the things I really wanted to touch on and came up a lot on some of the Defender Radio social media when we were talking about coyotes previously is how do you develop that community buy-in? And I think that's an interesting point of, it's not just saying coyotes. Uh, As you said, it's looking at the garbage because that's something I think most people will say, yeah, you know what? I don't like to see the garbage overflowing. So is that one of the ways to engage? And what other ways are there to engage the community? Well, I mean, you know, as you know, we really promote um, putting in effect a feeding wildlife bylaw. Mm -hmm. It can have some controversy to it but at the end of the day it's another fabulous tool that can be deployed by a community to encourage folks to buy into being better stewards yeah 
And so uh, the feeding wildlife bylaw, and I mean, we come out across issues, you know, a feral cat colonies, folks that are doing fantastic work with uh, the trap, neuter, return programs. And that, that impacts where wildlife is navigating to and from. Yep. And it has to be a conversation that everyone needs, needs to have and be able to come to a compassionate, sustainable outcome. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, removing the food, having a feeding program, uh, you know, all of those things, working with organizations that have a history of success, that's all part of it. So the buy-in, you know, look, again, history is very telling. Do you want to have traps in your community? Do you want to put wildlife and animals and kids at risk? Do you want to do the same old, same old? Or are you looking for a, a, a more humane horizon? Yeah. And so, you know, nowadays when, when a community opts to bring out the traps, there's a fallout from that. Mm -hmm. It's short term. It's not a solution. It's an action. And all you're doing is opening the landscape up for more coyotes or whatever the species is to come in and fill that fantastic niche that Mother Nature has put there. Yeah. So address the issues that are inherent in the community. Is it garbage? Is it compost? Is it folks throwing uh, you know, food items over a fence? Are they dispersing wildlife in a hydro corridor because they're going there illegally with snowmobiles or dirt bikes or ATVs? All of these things need to be looked at. And, you know, uh, folks have to sit up a little bit straighter. Yeah. You know, we can't rely on uh, lethal. It's just not acceptable in these times. And if we ignore... You know, coyote is our eco-thermometer. And I, you know, I'm kind of coined that term because <laughs> if I do say so myself. No, no. I can corroborate yeah. that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Everything that we learn can be connected to these animals. Are we doing a good job of all of the things that we're supposed to be responsible for? A big branch just fell. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The squirrels and everything is out there. And, mm -hmm. It's almost like there's um, a healthy ecosystem here. Uh, yeah, that's a story for another day. Uh, so, you know, the buy-in, it, it, you know, folks are excited. You know, when I get a call from a community, somebody that maybe has been to one of our presentations or uh, heard from their friend who's heard from their friend, and there's an excitement there there's an anticipation there of just trying something kinder yeah something that is cost effective mm -hmm. and time time effective so initially there's uh growing pains in anything that you know is change we we're creatures of habit we don't want to change but we know that we can't sustain what we're doing now so i get excited yeah. for the community and I've learned the bureaucracy I, I want things done yesterday and the city of Niagara Falls taught me that very well when are the signs getting up well the you know the sign department and it has to be vetted through communication and yep. all those things so and the I've, lawyers have to look at everything too yes mm -hmm. yes and being university accessible yep. our signage is I, I'm 
pretty proud of the signage and uh, it's utilized now you know across North America so and it, that in and of itself isn't the big deal the big deal is that signage is an important component of community education yeah and awareness and for folks that are new to the country mm-hmm. that aren't aware that we have these amazing family-oriented canids that look like our domestic dogs, but boy, oh boy, they surely behave by their own script of life. Yeah. And they don't need us to feed them. And it is, it's it's a wonderful thing to see the community start to rally around a cause. It really is. And that's, a lot of what you've said, I have seen apply. Um, I think one good example, talking with Dr. Heidi Perryman from Martinez, California, uh, and they had a, a wonderful cause about beavers. And it was the same thing. It was the community standing up and taking ownership. Uh, in, I believe it was Coquitlam, B.C., where we were involved, they had a high, high rate of bear conflict or conflict involving bears that were then uh, killed uh, because of this conflict, but saying that's not acceptable to us anymore and engaging the community. And we sent out volunteers with our door hangers on bear stuff. And here in Niagara Falls and some of the places you and I have visited for coyotes, it's that same, you, you get to a point where people say, we want to do better. And that's a really wonderful thing to see and be a part of. It, it is. And, you know, I think uh, there's folks that will always enjoy harming and killing animals. And mm-hmm. that's, that is the, the society that we live in. But there is a whole other just amazing a, a, a threat of humanity that is uh, surrounding us and you know that love nature yeah some of our strongest supporters are hunters mm-hmm. and that's a tough conversation for a lot of uh, folks that advocate for animals and because of being at that negotiation table when we get a call and, and somebody I'll say, you know, one of our typical things on the hotline, you know, how did you hear about us? We like to know how this social media, referral, whatever. And, you know, I'm always pleasantly surprised when somebody will say, well, so-and-so, uh, I was out hunting with him and he said that I should give you a call or, yeah. you know, and that to me uh, shows a, a, the sign of the times. And you, you know, you have to be able to recognize that because somebody's partaking in a particular activity that we might not agree with, or you agree with it, there's ethics involved in that too. And we have to be able to discuss that. Yeah. And it's not a comfort zone for most folks. And some of the most unlikely partnerships come from trying to preserve these animals in our communities and I'm very grateful for that and a couple of follow-ups I want to just these are kind of my these are my written down questions my little notebook um, two parts I want to ask are the what are things that have prevented success in creating these programs for communities and what are things that have ensured success let's start with issues that have come up that have prevented success or have been significant roadblocks in creating uh, coexistence or co- co-flourishing. I can't say that word. Co-flour- co-flourishing. Co-flourishing. <laughs> Just like that. I got co-flourishing. Uh, co-flourishing programs in communities. So what prevents them sometimes? Um, you know, I think a community might try to use uh, the funding a- uh, aspect, but we can work around that. Mm-hmm. 
It's more about not fulfilling each of the cornerstones. Yeah. You can't have enforcement and investigation and prevention and no education. You can't have education and enforcement without prevention and investigation because yeah. the investigation is what sheds the light on what is actually happening, not based on, oh, I believe this is what happened or this is what I'd like to believe. And there have been very few communities that we've engaged with that have not shown marked improvement, mm -hmm. better success, learning how to navigate with the reporting systems and where do the calls go to, who's going to respond, how do we get the information out there yep. through our humane education programs, our cool canids and nature literacy uh, pause program. But if one of those cornerstones is missing, there is no way. You, it just it won't function. And then, um, you know, I, I think probably the secondary roadblock would be, you know, not having the personnel in place. Yeah. But again, that can be worked around because you can offset some of those duties or responses to other folks in the community. That's when we develop our coyote response team, our canid response team. We're looking at individuals, the experts that are already in that community. How can we rally them together mm -hmm. and help offset some of the pressure on the municipality or the county or the city. Yeah. And so, you know, um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, I can't reiterate enough times, there, there has to be that commitment to the four cornerstones. Mm -hmm. And um, it's pretty measurable when there, there isn't that commitment there. Yeah. And we, we can't continue engaging with the community that's not invested in their own constituents. And that's one of the things that's been a, kind of a, a tough uh, part of acceptance for me is that, you know, we, we want to empower each individual community. We do not want to say, oh, yeah, we're going to come in and we're going to rescue the community and we're going to do all of this and that. No. What do you have in place already? Let's work with that. Can we pull in from some other aspect of an, another agency? Mm -hmm of their uh, job description, how can we cultivate a fantastic program that is based on your uh, details, yeah. like your, your criteria, what you have in the community. And it could be just animal services. And then they need help if they're doing investigative work. You know, there's just fantastic, you know, City of Brampton, Toronto, uh, you know, over in uh, Grand Island, New York, um, Niagara Falls. Uh, you know, there's a lot of communities that have actually established their own uh, pretty incredible coexistence yeah. program. We weren't necessarily engaged with those folks, but uh, I think, you know, the other thing is being able to measure the success. Mm -hmm. How do you know it's working? And hazing, you know, that's the big, you know, that's the big uh, 
action these days, folks are saying, you know, hazing and all of those things, you know, aversion conditioning is one part of the coexistence toolkit. Yeah. And it cannot, if you're out there hazing, but there's no enforcement for leash laws or garbage handling or, uh, you know, enforcement of a feeding wildlife bylaw, the message that we're providing to these animals through that aversion conditioning, it's inconsistent. And coyotes will, will take advantage of that. So will birds of prey, skunks, raccoons, whatever the species is. Well, my own dog does. Yeah, there you <laughs> right? go. Um, and then when we're talking about ensuring success, and I'm gonna I'm gonna skip I'm gonna stop you from saying buy-in because that's what we've been talking about pretty much this whole time. So, other than buy-in, what are factors that can exist that help the program get off the ground that exist within the community? A solid website mm-hmm. with information that's been field tested. Yeah, you can Google. You can find oh my gosh, thousands and thousands of resources regarding canids. But what works? What is working? You know, how do we take that, extrapolate the facts, provide solid step-by-step for communities, and also a way for them to communicate? Yeah. So, the, so what happens with the city of Niagara Falls, when those sighting reports come in, we get information by a wide range of methodologies. We might get a you know, information through the Coyote hotline number. Mm-hmm. We might get email. We might get it through the website. We might get it through the Humane Society, their, their uh, dispatch. Yep. So it all filters down. Once it goes through and there's a sighting report through the mayor's office, that individual gets an email from the mayor's office mm-hmm. um, thanking them for their contribution towards the co-flourishing program. But also, you know, inquiring, would you like more literature? We will mail it out to you. Yeah. And every citizen that reports a sighting, not necessarily that we're running out, checking it out, but we're looking at that and making a assessment. Okay, oh, you know what? Another hotspot's popping up or, oh, something's changed. There's infrastructure. They've lost this humongous field that had all these prey species. So there's going to be an adjustment period. We can deliver notices door to door, that kind of thing. But it's valuing the input and that's where the citizen science comes into it and so i we have folks that have been providing sighting reports since 2008 yeah and you know they are invaluable well it must paint a beautiful picture too of uh seeing change happen oh well i actually i was saying because i we had our presentation up in brampton uh monday evening and uh dr brent patterson and myself, we were presenting to uh, some wonderful folks in the city of Brampton. And uh, animal services supervisor, uh, Kathy Duncan, was there and two counselors, Bowman and Moore. And um, this audience was amazing. But, you know, looking back 10 years, it's our 10-year anniversary uh, this year for Coyote Watch Canada. And I enjoy presenting with Brent. Yeah. And we complement one another in terms of what information we're delivering. But I look back and I thought, holy Hannah, you know, this 10 years has been such an amazing journey for me and for our organization and 
you know, teaming up with folks like the fur bears. We've done a, a great deal of work together. Earthroots Wolf Awareness, bear with us. Yep. We, and we are a very embracing organization, and I think that's why our friendship, not only personally but professionally, has gone so long. Mm-hmm. And also because value. I'm so pretty. Oh, value, yes. I thought I, I was. I'm the pretty one. Um, <laughs> oh. the, the final note, final question, is people who are looking for a solution, who are in a community, wherever it may be. Um, is that a chipmunk or a squirrel over there? Sounded a uh, little chipmunkish. Yeah. Um, that's one of the fun things of recording outside. Love it. Um, and I'm nice and warm in my bully. Yeah, I'm very jealous about that yeah. coat. We'll do some fun stuff with it after. Okay. Um, anyway, when people are interested in talking about coyotes, when they want to get more information, when they want to say, you know what, our community needs a coexistence plan, what is the first step they can take to get towards a solution? Well, you know, I'll plug Coyote Watch Canada here. It's almost like that's what we're doing, though, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, kind of. Uh, you know what, reach out to us and we can help. Yeah. You know, email, give us a call, uh, you know, be be prepared, do some homework, find out what's happening in your community, take a drive around, you know, be the eyes uh, in the community that can identify potential locations for encounters and, you know, what's happening in the community already, what programs are in place. There's, you know, nature clubs, all sorts of great resources that are already there. And sometimes it's a matter of networking. And we are really great at doing that, bringing, for, especially with our nature literacy philosophy and program, we tie in art. Yep. Yeah, we nature. did. That was yes. a big one up in Cornwall. We did that. We did that in the Cornwall area, but we mm-hmm. also in Niagara Falls. Yep. We did. I am coyote. Yes, that's. I, I was at that one too. Standing, you were whittling. You did yeah. me a coyote. Yep. Very talented. So we pull in the artist, the uh, crafts person, using wood, uh, welding, mm-hmm. any way we can express nature beautifully. Yeah. And so those folks are already in the communities. We have a, next Thursday, we have a two-dog night going on in London at the, uh, my teeth are chattering here. Wow, it's a little bit nippy. Um, we have a two-dog night evening taking place. And so it's a celebration because coyotes and our domestic dogs and wolves and fox and jackals all come from the same canid family. There's a lot of dialogue and misinformation out there about what's actually taking place between our domestic dogs and our wild canids. So yeah. we're doing that event and we're going to be celebrating a lot of, you know, what's happening in the community there. Nature literacy, right? It's all around us. Lots of opportunity and getting kids to do up posters and, you know, create their buttons and even, you know, going out and doing on-site species inventory, that kind of thing engaging and looking looking for ways to really kickstart the interest with kids yeah. early on kids are fascinating i love them and I, I mean i do miss teaching but i'm teaching pretty much every day in one capacity or another right to get in touch with coyote watch canada or learn how their coexistence programs can help your community visit coyotewatchcanada.com or check them out on social media 
Links are available in this week's show notes at thefurbears.com. That's it for episode 501 of Defender Radio. Thanks to Leslie for joining me this week and all of you for listening. Remember to sign up to get Defender Radio email updates at thefurbearers.com slash updates for your chance to win a t-shirt and advocacy pack. And visit patreon.com slash Defender Radio to support the show. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.